Good morning, Calvary Church. Go Broncos. I saw the jersey. Um, We are just so excited to be here this morning uh, for Orphan Care Sunday. And I have the distinct honor and privilege to share with you a little bit about what Calvary has done in the past year to care for orphaned and vulnerable children. This is the best job. Uh, This past year, through Safe Families for Children, we have hosted eight children within our church, and three of those children made decisions for the first time to follow Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That means that Calvary families stepped up. They said that they would welcome a child into their home, a child that was at the risk of being placed into foster care. And those children lived with uh, these Calvary families for a while. They were tended to and nurtured to. And um, they were cared for until their parents were able to get their um, everything back together again. Um, as a church, we delivered over 30 meals to our safe family hosts. And we also provided over 25 gift cards, school supplies, and backpacks to these children. A lot of times when they come to their safe family, they only have a little, a, a few things. And so they need supplies. Um, there is a couple within our church that is in the process of adopting three children through foster care. This is a kidless couple. And so we helped them with the furnishing of their home. And we also helped them. Um, they did not have a car that fit five children or five people. And so we helped them by supplying a car. A Calvary family donated a car to this family. We have uh, three Calvary families who have adopted within the last year. So that means there are three children who are orphaned no more. Uh, Calvary paid for a foster child to go to a special therapeutic camp where they could receive um, counseling and care to help them manage and process some of their trauma that they experience through abandonment and rejection, which I, I know is just hugely important. Um, on an ordinary Wednesday night, we did the Kids Walk for Hope. Uh, 50 elementary kids from Calvary walked around and around and around our church parking lot to raise money for orphaned and vulnerable children in South Africa through Acres of Love. These 50 children raised $5,000 together. Um, Over 20 Calvary families helped fill stockings for foster children through all of Crest for Families. Uh, Calvary helped to throw a baby shower to a mom who was adopting a young boy. And also Calvary uh, supports three missionary families who work directly with orphans um, in South Africa. That's Randy and Susan Clark. Um, They run a home for orphaned babies. In Kenya, you might remember Mama Sweetie. Um, She runs a home for orphans with HIV. And in Moldova, Oleg and Marina Rutsky run a home for orphan girls who um, have come out of human trafficking. This is just like a teeny, teeny snippet of the ways we at Calvary. You should have seen the list. I had to narrow it down because of time constraints. But it's just amazing to think of all that we're doing as a church to care for orphaned and vulnerable children. It's, it's really overwhelming. We just want to say thank you so much. Um, and I want you all to clap because we're awesome.
You know, right now um, at Calvary, we have something called an orphan care task force. There are 40 people that are in our task force, and we've signed up to receive notifications and emails whenever there is a need within the Calvary Church family for these children, for these orphan and vulnerable children. And we are hoping, I'm going to be direct and honest, we are hoping this morning to double that number. Um, the 40 of us in the task force are working very hard, and we, re- we need more hands. Uh, so to join our, our task force would just mean that you're signing up for this email list. You'll receive notifications when there's a need. That could be meals. That could be gift cards. That could be um, small, medium, and large ways that you can help out. But we really do need more hands for our orphan care task force. And Matt's going to share a little bit more about that later. Also, I wanted to let you know we have... Uh, a fund here at Calvary set up. It's our orphan care fund. And there will be an opportunity to give to that fund if you're a person with means. But if you are a family in need that's caring for orphan and vulnerable children, we wanted you to know first, there's a task force. There are 40 of us. It's going to be 80 of us very soon. And we want to help you. And we are prepared to come around you because it takes a village to raise a child. And we know that. And there are also resources that are available to you because we have this orphan care fund here at Calvary. And so we want you to know we are here to support you, to care for you, to love you as you care for these children who are without families. So yes, please uh, step forward. Tell us who you are. Tell us how you want to help. Make yourself available. It can be very, sim- very small or very large. It can be giving up that extra car you have in the driveway, or it can be buying some gift cards or some diapers or very small things like that, delivering a meal. But also, like Karen said, if you are caring for these children, we want to help you. I had the privilege after the first service to talk with a single adoptive mother of two who is, by all admission, drowning. And I was so grateful that because of this morning that she surfaced, that we now know about her, and we will now step up to support her and help her raise these two girls that God has given her. Um, and one of the things that I was pleased to be able to share with her is that we have, uh, on a monthly basis, a group of us that are involved in orphan care, and whether that's adoptive families or people who are serving in foster care, people who are in safe families, or just people who have a heart and a passion for this that are serving in other ways that are maybe not quite as hands-on. We get together monthly uh, during first service. And so we're, our next meeting is not yet uh, on the books because we're taking December off, but there's places out there, tables in the lobby afterwards this morning. Come give us your name, give us your information so that we can reach out to you and let you know when that next meeting is because the power of that group is really um, amazing in terms of the support that we are able to give to each other. It's fantastic. Uh, I now have the privilege uh, this morning of introducing you guys to our guest speaker. Jed Medifin is a friend of mine. We go back to our first day of classes at Westmont College. And the first thing that... Uh, I think it's important for you to know about Jed is that he's smart, really smart. Everyone who went to Westmont with him picked up on that pretty quickly, and I, I personally recall being very impressed with him even on that first day of our freshman honors philosophy class. Jed excelled in college um, and then created some great post-college opportunities for himself. In fact, he was on his way to one of the top law schools in the country until he and three friends from Westmont got a crazy idea to postpone real life after college and instead go on a year-long around-the-world missions trip. That trip turned out to be an epic adventure for the ages that 
also was later turned into a really great book called Four Souls by Jed and those three friends. In the years following the publication of that book, Jed worked in politics for a number of years, starting in Sacramento, shifting to Washington, D.C., and culminating with the two years that he served as the acting director of the White House Office for Faith-Based and Community Initiatives at the end of the George W. Bush administration, a position he assumed at the ripe old age of 33. Uh, years ago, when Karen and I were en route to Ethiopia to meet our son, Daniel, we stopped in D.C. for a night on the way, and while there we visited with Jed, who was also in the process, along with his wife, Rachel, who's here today with their whole family, actually, uh, of adopting from Ethiopia. And we compared stories, we commiserated about some of the hardships of the adoption process, and then Jed gave us a really quick West Wing tour, which was fascinating. I highly recommend it if you ever get the chance. The next year, the Bush administration came to an end, and Jed found himself out of a job. And God called him at that point in 2009 to take the helm of the Christian Alliance for Orphans, which is an alliance of over 180 orphan-serving organizations all around the world. And the alliance that Jed heads up brings these member organizations together to work on coordinated initiatives so that they're not all just working on their own things, but they can bring the power of all of those organizations together to work together all around the world to grow effective adoption, foster care, and orphan care around the world. In the last handful of years, under Jed's leadership, the orphan care movement has made significant strides. Jed is also the author of a short book called Becoming Home, Adoption, Foster Care, and Mentoring. You'll have an opportunity to pick this up out in the lobby after the service. So let me recap. Jed worked in the White House. He and Rachel are adoptive parents. He's the president of the Christian Alliance for Orphans. He speaks all over the country on this topic, and he's traveled the world for the cause of the orphan. What I'm trying to say is, if you haven't gotten the picture, he's an expert in this field, one who is nationally recognized and sought after. Can you imagine how many churches around the country would like to have the president of the Christian Alliance for Orphans as their speaker on Orphan Sunday? We have that privilege. So would you please join me in welcoming our guest speaker, Jed Medifin. Thank you, Curtis and Karen. And just for the record, there is no church in America I'd rather be in than Calvary Church this morning. <laughs> and also to set the record straight, Curtis, in that class with Dr. Winberg, my first test, I got a C minus. I was afraid I was going to flunk out of Westbot, seriously, at that point, or at least lose any scholarship hope at all. Well, um, on Wednesday morning, I, I meet with some men for prayer. One of the guys' name is Kirk. When I, when I shared I was going to spe be speaking at Calvary Church, he lit up. He said, that church changed my life. Uh, Kirk had grown up in a great Christian family, but in high school, he just kind of wandered away from his faith and just wasn't, wasn't living it. And there was a guy from, from Calvary that came up to him and basically had the guts to say, Kirk, you say you're a Christian, but I don't see it in your life. And he invited him to come into the community here. And this Kirk joined with some guys, and it just totally drew him back to the Lord. And, and Kirk actually went on a missions trip with the church with a guy some of you may have known. I believe his name is Matt Schoen. Um, and they went to South America. And the bad news is Kirk actually got malaria on that trip. But that changed the trajectory of his life. He had been planning to go into physical therapy. And today, Kirk is a professor of uh, communicable diseases and tropical diseases at UC Merced as a result of what happened on that trip. 
So I, I know from, man, from what was shared this morning already from conversations with Curtis and Matt and others, there is already great health growing here and great expressions of God's heart. And so it's my prayer just to be a little fertilizer on that this morning. And uh, where I come from, fertilizer is mainly chicken manure and cow manure. And I am happy to be either one if it just contributes a little bit to what's, what's already happening here. Um, as Curtis mentioned, today is Orphan Sunday. And actually, today and this week, all across America, around the world, thousands of churches will be celebrating Orphan Sunday. Um, but but what's, I love the story of how this whole idea began. It actually wasn't from you know, New York or some power center in Washington, D.C. It was a small church in Zambia uh, where the pastor, a guy named Bill, Billions Chandway, um, there in this cement floor church, I've been there, wood floors, Kyrgyz, or cement floor, corrugated roof, ceiling, and, and the, the, the church was very hard-pressed, many people that had been impacted by HIV and other things, poverty, and yet he felt like, you know, the body of Christ in all of its expressions is called to, to reflect God's heart for the orphan, for the fatherless. And so he, he just had this idea, let's call it Orphan Sunday, and he just celebrated how God loves these children and, and all these kids that everyone knew in the neighborhood there, and he just said, this is something we need to be about as a church. And on that day, there were there was an, an older guy in the church that came forward. He took off his shoes. He put them in front of the church. He said, these are for the orphans. And there was a woman who had been at the market before church, and she brought the two head of cabbage that she had bought for her family for their evening meal. She brought those forward and said, these are for the orphans. And person after person just shared from their heart, from their life. And there, there happened to be an American, a guy named Gary Schneider there, who saw this happen. He was just visiting, and he observed, and he was so moved, and he just felt like the church in America needs more of this kind of thing. And so he brought this idea back with him to the U.S., and long story short, it kind of began to spread from church to church. And, and today, Orphan Sunday will be celebrated in more than 75 countries around the world. This little gift from a small, unlikely place, hard-pressed church in Zambia, and just what a great picture of how God loves to work. God loves to take little unlikely things and grow beautiful things with them. And that's my prayer this morning, that little seeds planted might grow into something that we wouldn't have expected. Well, um, want to plunge in just real quick, introduce my family to you. You know, it's, it's only fair that you get to see these beautiful kids. Um, that's Sienna, Marin, Eden, Lincoln, and Phoebe there in Sunday school. Actually, Sienna's right over here right now. And as you can tell, they often get the better of me, but, uh, but we have a lot of fun together. Um, and this is my wife, Rachel. As you can tell from the picture, she's gorgeous. She's also an amazing wife and mother, and she is also a great runner. And so I, I really try very judiciously to avoid running with her to the fullest extent possible because you can, you can see from the picture what it does to me when I try to run with her. <laughs> it's not pretty, but I am very thankful for all other facets of our relationship together. And um, we, we are, we are um, adoptive parents, but um, what, what I would say is that the greatest and, and most remarkable thing that, that we get to see as we begin to interact with other adoptive parents, and then in my work, we, we travel and I, I spend time with Christians around the U.S. and around the world, that there is this re recurring theme, I would say, of people saying, we want to live the pure religion that James talks about. We want to we be known as defenders of the fatherless. And this is happening across the United States. In Colorado, the number of children waiting to be adopted has been cut in half. 
And, and the woman who's in charge of that, I talked with her about it, and she says, everyone knows who's doing it. It's those Christians. They're taking the kids no one else used to want. And I'm seeing things like that popping out in, in Arkansas and Washington, D.C. and Seattle and many other parts of the world, too, that, that Christians are, are beginning to reawaken to this, this role as defenders of the fatherless. But I would say this very clearly. This is nothing new for the church. That caring for orphans, that defending the fathers, this is something that goes back in the church's DNA to the very first days of, of, the, of the body of Christ. You know, the ancient Romans, they had a practice called exposing. And if, if there was a, a baby that was born that was unwanted because it was deformed or it was the wrong gender or maybe just came at an at a inconvenient time, it could be taken outside the city walls Sometimes it was, it was drowned in water. And sometimes, though, it was just left there for the wind and the rain, the wild animals to do their work. And the church at that time was just a small and persecuted minority in the Roman Empire. But Christians earned a reputation as a people who would go outside the city and find these little children, pick them up and wrap them and, and bring them in and sometimes even raise them as their own. And you saw this defining the church at that stage. In fact, there's early church documents that, that, that the requirement to be an elder, one of the requirements was that you be known as a lover of orphans. And you just see this all throughout history. People like Afra of Augsburg and St. Catherine of Bratislava you've probably never heard of and George Mueller and Charles Spurgeon was very involved in orphan care in England. And, and the church at its best has been known for this. And it's beginning to re-earn that historic reputation today. But, but all of this kind of begs the question, why? You know, why is Scripture so strong on this and repeatedly calling God's people to defend the Father's care for orphans? And why throughout history have Christians been known for this? And I have come to believe with all my heart that this is about more that than just a, the, a good cause. That we see this so strongly in Scripture because it, it is revealing some to us. It is teaching very significant things to us about the orphan and about God and also about what God desires for each of us. So first of all, what it reveals to us about the orphan, it tells us this, that orphans are the most vulnerable beings on our planet. We could talk about a lot of facets of that, but let me just, let me just tell you one thing. that There was a study done a number of years back by Dr. Charles Nelson of, of low nurture orphanages in Romania. And he was actually looking at the, the brain development of young children. What he discovered actually shocked him, even as a researcher, that for every two months that a child lived in this orf these orphanages, they lost an IQ point up to age three, that, that you know, IQ you know, is supposed to be a fairly un, unmoving measure, and yet these children were actually losing IQ points by being in these orphanages. And, and his, his further research actually eventually discovered to, to, to his, he was very thankful to find that when children mo were moved out of these orphanages into foster families, that actually they did better, that that rate of, of loss of IQ was actually significantly slowed, and when they were moved into adoptive families, it almost 
was completely erased, that, that, that issue. And yet, and yet he, he, Dr. Nelson has continued to do research in other parts of the world too, and he's found this similar factor, that the children growing up without families, that their brains are often lagging behind their peers that are growing up in families. And I'll give you a quick visual of why that is here. So let's look, look for a moment at the, at the lower of these two pictures, okay? And these are brain scan of two different children. And the lower one is of a child growing up within a family. Not necessarily a great family, but just there, there's parents there that, that care for and nurture and provide. And, and you see that, that, that the top part of that slide there, is, it's red. And that's actually the frontal cortex. That's the part of your brain that, that where all of your important decision-making happens and where you can plan out for the future. You can, you can defer gratification. That, that's all happening in your frontal cortex. And in a healthy brain, that part of your brain's on fire. It's red like that. But that top slide, that represents a child, and it's an actual brain scan of a child that is growing up in a low nurture orphanage. And you see that that frontal cortex, that there's almost no visible activity there. Because the things that happen in a, in a home, in a family, even a very imperfect one, the interactions that happen and a child is picked up when they're, when they're crying and maybe wrestling or talking about different things, that is what grows the brain. And so when that is absent... It begins to drain the health and life that God intends for a child. And you, you see this in all different kinds of measures, physical size and the, the, the vulnerability to disease and all of these other areas. And it's not only when a child is really little, but as they grow, you see it manifest in other areas, this intense vulnerability. It's visible especially in the vulnerability of children without families to trafficking. There was a study in Moldova a number of years back that actually showed that, that girls who grow up in orphanages are 10 times more likely to be trafficked than other girls. There was a study in Zambia of, of child prostitutes on the streets of Lusaka. They found that three quarters of these girls were orphaned. Their average age was 15. They made $2 a day sleeping with between three and four clients every day. That is what happens when there is not the provision and protection standing between a child and all the evils that the world would bring at vulnerable children. And this is not just over there in, in far-off places. Actually, the, in 2013, the FBI did a raid of trafficking rings here in the United States and 60% of the child victims of trafficking came out of the foster system. And you might ask yourself, why, why is that? There's a young woman named T. Ortiz, who I've gotten to know just a little bit over the years. This is T here. T spent almost her whole growing up here, 17 years of her childhood, in the foster system. For seven of those years, she experienced trafficking and exploitation and a lot of very terrible things. And, and what she explains is that, you know, when a, when a child in the foster system goes missing, often it's not even noticed. She said there's no amber alert when a child from foster care is missing. She also said this. She, she, she said, for myself, as unfortunate as is to say, the most consistent relationship I had in all my years in the foster system were with my pimp and his family. And you know, even, even when it's not so vivid 
and gripping, even when it's more subtle loss of things that family is supposed to provide, it still is so hard. I, I think of, of a young woman named Che who, who spent some time in foster care in Tennessee. And, and when she was in her mid-teens, she got a, a job, a part-time job, and she would drive there. And she was driving home one day after work, and her car started smoking. And then, and then so she pulled over to the side of the freeway, and she jumped out, and, and the engine just melted down there. And she explained to me later, she said, I knew you were supposed to put gasoline in the car, but no one had ever said anything to me about oil. Those are just the little things that you learn by osmosis when you're growing up in a family, not even a perfect family, but just with consistent, caring adult relationship around you. The child growing up without family is the most vulnerable being on our planet. But you know, the fact that the Bible talks so much about this also reveals to us so much about the God we serve. So I, I want to show you this next slide here, and I want to see if any of you can, can guess who these amazing people are. Can, does anyone recognize these guys? Anyone? Who, who is it? That's right, the Greek gods, right? And aren't they just amazing? Don't you just want to bow down and worship them? No, of course not, right? I mean, they're, you just see, this is a great picture. They're petty. They're self-absorbed. They're, they're quarreling over little unimportant things. I mean, it's like, you know, in, in the last service, we were thinking about how it'd be great for, you know, to have like a reality TV show about these people. It'd be better than the Kardashians, you know? And... And, and you think, who is it that they really were interested in? You know, who was it that they paid attention to according to all these myths? And, you know, it was the generals and the, the, the great athletes and the beautiful people. So, you know, they might have been interested in Matt Doan here, right? But what about the rest of us? They wouldn't have cared. But then, then you think about the God of the Bible. different. How utterly different. Hear these words from the Torah. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. Utterly different. Utterly above, transcendent, omnipotent, all-powerful pure, holy. And yet you know what the next line is in that passage? He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien. I don't think there's a more powerful juxtaposition in all religious literature and all of history than that. Mighty and awesome and above and yet especially near to the most vulnerable and in need. And so what we need to understand as followers of this God is that, you know, while yes, there is a clear command in Scripture to do these things, long before it is a command, we just see this as a reflection of God's heart. So, you know, you, you, in Isaiah, where, where God is calling the people of Israel back to the true essence of religion, he does command, defend the cause of the fatherless. 
You know, that's a, that's a mandate. But you see those exact same words all the way back in Deuteronomy where it says, He defends the cause of the fatherless. It's the same with James. You know, James 1.27, that pure and faultless religion is to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Or to visit orphans and widows in their distress. But you, you actually see that same word back in the Gospels, right at the beginning where Zechariah has picked up the, the, the newly arrived Messiah and he says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has come and redeemed his people. That's the same word that you see later in James as God is reminding his people that this is true religion. And so we know, we come to know, as we encounter these things, that caring for orphans is not just a mandate but it is even more, it is a mirror of God's character. And as Christians, we know, you know, this ultimately, this is, this is not just the orphan's story. This is our story, right? Because what is the gospel if it is not that God pursued us when we were destitute and alone, that he came outside the city walls, And he draws us to himself. And he invites us to live as his sons and his daughters with full inheritance, rights, a full identity as part of his family, to call him Abba. So when Christians choose to to do these things, to to adopt, to foster, to to become a mentor to a child in, in the foster system, to get involved in supporting families that are doing that, we are just giving a small reflection of the way that we have first been loved. But there's one more thing that this this biblical emphasis on the orphan and the fatherless reveals as well. It tells us a lot about what God desires for each of us as well. Because when God invites us into the realm of caring for the orphan, He is inviting us into a place of great beauty and great brokenness. It's a place of immense hurt. Because, you know, we we need to understand this. That every orphan's journey as an orphan began with a tragedy. Every child's journey into the foster system began with a tragedy. Often great sorrow preceded it. Often things get worse from there. And so when we are inviting a child into our home that has known great hurt, we need to understand we will almost inevitably taste of some of that hurt as well. Just last summer, I spoke at a camp and I was speaking on some of these things and and after the end of it, an elderly couple came up to me, the Webbs. He's retired Air Force. They live in Chico, California, that area. And they wanted to share their story. They told me how many decades ago, 30 plus years ago, they had fostered a number of children. One of these was a boy named Rick. And they had just really loved Rick. And they had wanted to just help change the trajectory of a life that had experienced so much hurt. But Rick just continually rejected their every effort to love and encourage and help. And, and he just always would push back. And whenever they would try to set any boundaries or limits, you know, he would say things like, I know the law. Don't touch me. I know the law. I'll report you and you'll go to jail. Just nothing they could do would break through that. And and on Thanksgiving, Mrs. Webb made this great Thanksgiving meal for them and they enjoyed it together. And then almost right afterwards, 
Rick went out and he stole a neighbor's farm truck and, and drove it around and crashed into a ditch. And he was arrested. He was put in juvie. They, the system wouldn't let him back into the Webb's house. And all these years later, I could just hear the ache in the Webb's voices. They told me about this and how after this that Rick had aged out of the foster system and gotten out of juvie and then he, he ended up committing more crimes as a young adult and he went to in and out of prison and then one of the times after spending a couple years in prison he got out and that very night he was caught breaking and entering into a house and under California's three strikes law he was put behind bars for life he's still there to this day he's in his 40s and the webs had had such hope for little Rick and they hoped that they could just you know that their love would just change everything and it hadn't changed everything. And they were still aching about it all these years later. And so we, we need to understand that, you know, that caring for the orphan, that, that adoption and fostering and mentoring, all these things, there is beauty in it. And I will tell you, I have seen so many lives changed, children's lives changed, parents' lives changed. But it is often not in the way that we had hoped. And it can be a very hard and costly journey. That, that these things actually, that caring for the orphan, it mirrors the gospel story, both in the beautiness, beauty and in the costliness of that journey. And that's why we need each other. That is the good news, is that God designed the church to walk through hard things together. I think of when, when my wife and I, Rachel, were, were in the beginning of our adoption journey and we went through you know, these mounds of paperwork and all this, this long, long process and finally we were matched with a little girl. We were adopting from Ethiopia and, and we were matched with her and we named her Ayana Rachel and we celebrated as in the birth of a child and, and our family celebrated with us and we were making plans to go and travel and bring her home when I got a call at work. And they said, Jed, we've got something we need to tell you and we'd like you, for you to be with Rachel when we do. Could you go home? So in the middle of the day, I went home and then we called the agency back. And they said, we just feel so sorry to tell you this, but your little girl died last night. And she, her body was so weak that the pneumonia just took her before we could even tell you she had pneumonia. And you know, it was, it was just such a deep, experience of grief for us to, and, and yet strange because we were mourning this little girl that we had never even held before and, and we knew that our taste of grief was so small you know so many people have lost children so many children have lost parents and we were just having this little sip of all of that and yet it was so painful and yet I can also tell you that a few weeks later when our church reached out and said, we want, we want to do a, a funeral. Actually, it was a few days later they reached out, and a, and, a, and a couple weeks later they had a funeral for Ayana. Ayana was buried in Ethiopia, but, but the church community came around us, and we had a memorial service for her. And I remember still the t tears running down my face, and yet just never having felt so loved by the body of Christ, never having felt such tangible love of God's people around us in that journey. And so I would say that, 
when we're walking this journey of adoption and foster care and mentoring and all of these things, when we are experiencing it together, we get a chance to experience body life as rarely we do the community life. We, we really understand what it means to say that we're better together. I mean, maybe even more that we can't even survive individually, that God intends us to do these things together. You know, so, that, so the, the idea is not just one family that's adopting or one family that's fostering or one person mentoring. It's one family or one individual wrapping around a child that's wrapped around by church community. And for us, that was so significant, both in, in grieving for Ayana and then later when we brought our daughter Eden home. People in our church community celebrated with us and gave gifts. And, and there, there had been families that had helped us financially with that process. So it was like they were kind of welcoming home a child too. And there was a woman, a retired woman in, in our church named Lorraine, who for more than a year actually did all the grocery, grocery shopping for us. We would give her the, the list to the grocery store and she would just go out and bring us our groceries. What an incredible thing. And, and I see this whenever a culture of, of reflecting God's heart grows up in a church. You see that start of things starting to happen. You know, the, the, I have a good buddy and, and they were fostering. They brought, they actually were, were, were not expecting it. They got an unexpected placement of two children, two, two children who are African-American. And, and that afternoon, the pastor's wife showed up, who's an African-American. She had a, a basket of hair care and skin care products and gave them a crash course on how to take care of hair and skin that they hadn't known before. And, and let me just tell you, that's very important if you don't understand that. And, and you know, I know of, there's a, there's a lawyer I know who provides low-cost and no-cost legal work to support families that are doing these things. And there's an orthodontist who provides free orthodontic work for families that have adopted. And it can, it can look like, you know, a single person running errands or doing babysitting. It can absolutely look like someone who's retired becoming a surrogate grandparent. I want to challenge you. If you, if you think you have out, outgrown this and, you know, this is all the past, every one of us can play a role. Because, you know, not every Christian, certainly not everyone in here is called to adopt. Not everyone is called to foster. Not everyone is called to mentor or be a casa or do safe families. But every Christian community is called to live out the pure religion that James describes as including caring for orphans and widows in their distress. And every one of us can play a part in that. That's what Curtis and Karen were talking about, being a part of the, the task force and being willing to, to, to come in with a meal or do some yard care or run some errands or maybe even donate a car. That was really cool. And when this happens, we begin to see that, that God can work even in those hurtful, very difficult journeys. You know, the webs that I told you about, they've stayed in contact with Rick all of those years, 30 plus years now. They send, they, they send him a card every birthday, usually with a gift, often Christian books. They, and, and for years they knew he wasn't even reading them. He would tell them he's not going to read them. And at Christmas, they'd send him a Christmas card and they would visit him. And a few years ago, he shared with them, he said, you know, I stayed with lots of foster families over the years. He said, you're the only ones that have stayed in touch with me. 
And fairly recently, he's begun reading those books that, he, that they've sent year after year. And even more recently, he started beginning his letters to them in a new way. Dear Mom and Dad. And of course, you can ask yourself, is that a, is that a failure or is that a success? It's hard to know for sure, right? And a lot of these times in these difficult, painful journeys, we won't know until all things are made clear in heaven. But what we can know with certainty is that children growing up without parents are the most vulnerable beings on our planet. And we can know that God, our Father, loves every single one of them, every orphan, every child in the foster system. He loves them deeply. And we can know that he invites us to be a part of that with him, to be his hands and his feet and his embrace, whether as foster parents or adoptive parents or mentors or supporting the families that are doing that, being the church body around those who are providing that love directly. And when we do that, I will, I will say just from story after story, friend after friend, that no one is left the same. No one is left the same in that process. You know, families that have opened their, their lives and hearts, they are changed in the process. And kids' lives are changed too. Sometimes in dramatic ways, in all the ways you'd hope. Sometimes in subtle ways. Like Rick's here 30 plus years later. And ultimately, the watching world is changed as well as people look from a distance and see God's heart made visible in a way they may never have seen before. I mean, think about for someone who has been hurt deeply by the church or, or a bit skeptical about faith or said all those Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites. Think about what it means to them for them to see the church making the gospel story visible as it embraces kids that the world has pushed to the side. You remember the, the young woman that I mentioned, Che? in Tennessee, whose car kind of burned up because she didn't know about adding oil. Well, there was, there was actually a church that she had gone to from time to time over the years. And there was a mechanic in that church that heard about her car burning up. And so he, he actually was put in contact with her and he helped her to find a new used car. And the church pooled some money to, to make up for the difference that, that she couldn't pay to, to get that new used car. And a little bit later, actually, she was, because she was older, I think at 17 at the time, the, the system was going to put her in a group home because they assumed no, no foster family would be, you know, wanting to take a 17-year-old. And she was headed into this group home. And the church heard about it, and they said, we can't let that happen. And so there was, there was a, a widow in the church named Sherry who said, I'd be willing to have her. I'd be glad to have her. Sherry had actually been a Sunday school teacher to Che when Che was in seventh grade. And so they asked Che about it. She said, yeah, I'd love to. And she went and lived with Sherry. And, you know, it, it was not always easy. You know, Che had been used to living without any limitations, no one really saying no in her life. And so when Sherry was trying to love her by setting certain limits and expecting her to be home at certain times of night and things like that, Che would push back. In, in fact, Che said to me, she said, there was a lot of friction. But right after that, she said, but if you ask me today who my mom is, I'll tell you it's Sherry. 
And there were others in the church that played a role in that as well. There was a lawyer that helped her with some legal work. There was a nurse. There was a retired teacher that, that were involved in Che's life through those years and then she, as she transitioned and went to college. And, and just a couple years ago, Che met a, a great guy named Nate. And they fell in love and they made plans to get married. And of course, this, this little Baptist church was the natural fit for where, where they would get married. And so Che just came down the aisle, you know, just beaming and, and in glowing white. But there was no father there to give her away. But the church had planned for that. And so when the pastor said, who gives this girl to be married to this man? The church stood up together and said, we do. That's what it looks like for the church to reflect God's heart for the orphan, for the fatherless, for the foster youth, and not just to do it individually, but to do it together as a community. And it allows us together to experience and together to show the world who God really is, what he's all about. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for what you show us of yourself in your deep love for the orphan, Lord, for the most vulnerable child, for the child who the world completely forgets, Lord, for how you express special love for that child. Thank you for what it tells us about you. Thank you for how it shows us of your deep and special love for each of us, Lord, and your pursuit of us. Father, most of all, help us to know that love. Help us to see you as you really are in that. And then because of that, Lord, to become more like you and to reflect that, Lord, in small and humble ways. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jed, thank you for being good fertilizer for us this morning. The Holy Spirit, I believe, is working in many of our hearts this morning. And we as a church want to, so to speak, say, we do as we get behind the cause of the orphan. And I want to give you a couple opportunities to respond to that here today, right where you're at. Uh, one is in your booklet bulletin that you received when you came in. There's a card that says, Ways to Get Involved in Orphan Care. If you would just pull that out for a moment. And you can read through. There's a bunch of ways listed there in that card. As Curtis and Karen mentioned earlier, we have this orphan care task force that we've developed here at Calvary Church. We're hoping to add many more of you here this morning. If you're interested in being part of that task force, we'd love for you just to write your basic information on the card, tear off the bottom portion of that. And then at the stations in just a moment, you can bring that up as an act of worship. And to say, Lord, I'm going to give you my time, my treasure. Use me however you may. And then you'll be receiving just updates, emails of how you can get involved. You don't have to say yes every time you get an email for a need, but at least you'll be aware 
of ways that you can stand up and say, we do. And then also you heard about our Orphan Care Fund. And we want to invite you to participate with this in a couple of ways. Above and beyond your normal giving to the ministries of Calvary and, and your faith promise, this is an opportunity to give towards families who are ready to say yes to adoption. Often the biggest barrier is it costs so much money to get started. And so this fund is a small way that we want to encourage families to start this process. And you can give to this fund today. You can simply use the envelope and the chair rack in front of you. Write Orphan Care Fund on it and put your money in it. Drop it in at the stations as well. Or you can go online and pay through online. There's a drop-down menu and just click Orphan Fund uh, for there. If you're considering adoption, we'd love for you to take advantage of this Orphan Care Fund. And out in the lobby today, there's some applications to even begin that process. Some of you need to go to lunch with your spouse and talk about this and say, I think God may be leading us to do something here. I encourage you not to push away that voice of the Lord, but to say, okay, God, we want to be obedient to that. And as you leave here today in the lobby, there's several agencies and organizations that are here. And I'd love for you just to walk around. We have everything from um, Orange County Human Trafficking Task Force to Angel Tree and helping families that have a mom or dad in prison. All of them are on some spectrum of orphan care. Now, you stepping into that table doesn't mean you've committed your life, but it just means, hey, I want to engage and find out more information. So as you leave today, I encourage you to hang out or go grab your kids and then come back. So just in a moment, I'm going to pray, and then you have an opportunity to respond at the stations. You have the cup and the bread there. That's to remind us that we have been adopted. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been adopted. You are called, as Ephesians 1 says, a son or a daughter of the king. And so we'll just celebrate that by taking communion this morning. So let's pray. Father, you are good, you are gracious, you are the perfect Father. Thank you that you've called us to yourself, that you've said you are my child. Thank you for adopting us when we were left out in the city gates because of our sin. So Lord, in this time we celebrate that and we ask God, show us how to get involved to reflect to this skeptical world how beautiful and sweet the gospel is. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.